Uh, this evening, um, I thought I would uh, talk uh, for, about epidemics. And the reason I've chosen this as a topic and chosen infectious diseases as my first year uh, of lectures uh, is because they were uh, in this, this year we're coming into, which is the 500th year of the birth of Sir Thomas Cresham, by far the dominant part of medicine. So when this college was founded, medicine was very largely infectious diseases. And they're broadly divided into endemic diseases, diseases that are there all the time in the background, of which there were very many during Sir Thomas Gresham's lifetime, over the top of which occur epidemics where you suddenly get a surge of a particular infection. And during his lifetime, there were many epidemics that we know about, almost certainly many epidemics we do not know about. So there were, for example, two uh, moderately sized plague epidemics uh, here in London, a syphilis epidemic that really occurred throughout his entire lifetime uh, and didn't in many ways come to an end till the beginning of this century, the last century rather, uh, a smallpox uh, epidemic on a background of uh, ongoing smallpox, typhus epidemics, uh, and a disease that was considered pretty unique to the UK, UK uh, the English sweat sweating sickness, uh, which, of which there were two major outbreaks in his lifetime. So there were very many epidemics at that stage. Now, plague, which, as I say, he had uh, two epidemics in his lifetime, is an example of the extraordinary power infectious diseases have historically had to shape human history, but also the human capacity to respond to those diseases. Exact estimates are obviously difficult and views vary, but I think most people who've looked at this consider that plague reduced the world's population during one of some of its bigger pandemics from an estimated 450 million to around 350 million, uh, maybe slightly more than that, in the 14th century, an astonishing drop in global mortality. And Europe, which was very badly affected, between 30 and 60% of the European population died. The impact of that on society clearly cannot be exaggerated. The risk of a plague epidemic or pandemic now, significant one, uh, is now zero, although epidemics, as we'll come back to, occur to this day. This is, however, also the centenary year and the centenary month of the last really serious global pandemic, uh, and that was the 1918-20 H1N1 influenza pandemic, also known as the Spanish flu. This probably killed between 50 and 100 million people. And to put that in some kind of perspective, I've just showed the death toll in the United States, where the data are reasonably reliable, comparing the number of people who died in that flu pandemic in the USA with all the people who died in every war in the last century in the US. More people died in that single pandemic than everybody in the US who died in every war, First World War, Second World War, Vietnam and Korea. That puts in perspective quite how serious this was. And as I say, there are people living today who lived through that pandemic. These kinds of epidemics and pandemics can come on extraordinarily uh, suddenly uh, and spread very rapidly. So let's take that 1918 pandemic, and I'm taking the USA because we combine good data and large geography. Looking at this map we have here on the screen, what you can see in dark colours are the area where this entered the United States uh, and spread before September the 14th of that year. This is exactly 100 years ago. The areas in the light colours, most of which are relatively remote, are where it had got to after October the 5th. So that spread across the USA occurred in a period when there was very much limited transport just after the war over the period of less than a month. And if you look at the sp spike in mortality we saw in that year, comparing the October of that year to the October of the years previously, and this, these were the years of privation, this is during a war, you can see the massive impact that had on mortality just in this month of October, exactly 100 years ago. So when really serious pandemics happen, they slam into society with extraordinary force and speed. And they were doing this even in pre-industrial times. So you think about uh, plague uh, or the epidemic of syphilis, which uh, was really developing during Sir Thomas's lifetime, uh, this is, for example, a, a map of plagues spread 
Uh, and what you can see is that it spread really quite rapidly across Europe in a medieval period when transport was considerably slower than it is now, although not as slow as I think people may imagine. Uh, and, uh, for example, uh, syphilis, which was, uh, as far as we can tell, a new disease to Europe uh, around uh, 1494, um, spread after the Battle of Naples all around the continent, probably within a matter of months. And it is certainly recorded as far north as Leith, for example, by 1497. So these diseases could spread even in periods when uh, transport was much uh, slower. So it's therefore possible, but wrong, but many newspapers make this point wrongly, uh, so I'm going to make it uh, for them and then say it's wrong, uh, that we are increasingly vulnerable to epidemics uh, because of the massive transport networks we have by land, sea and air. This is just a map uh, of the transport links in the world, uh, how many places you can get to within 24 hours. Uh, and as you can see, uh, the United Kingdom is there, uh, right in the centre of this. However, the reason that this is not uh, actually a, as worrying as it looks is that being rich as a society massively hardens society against epidemics of any sort. And it does this not primarily for reasons of medicine, which we'll come on to, medicine does play a role, but in fact because of all the other things that lead to a successful rich society. Agriculture, for example, leading to substantially better nutrition. Uh, engineering, leading to better housing. Sanitation, clean and plentiful water, and cleaner heating as examples. So there are many things we do as societies which are not designed to prevent epidemics, but do so just as a process as countries become wealthier and more developed. But that doesn't mean that epidemics have gone away. Far from it. I've put up here just six, and there are very many others I could have chosen, just six of the epidemics that have occurred in this year, 2018. In the top row, I've shown three which would have been very well known to citizens of London uh, at the time of the foundation of this college. There's a significant outbreak of multidrug-resistant typhoid in Pakistan, of cholera in Zimbabwe and Yemen, I'll come back to Yemen, and a plague in Madagascar, and we're just about to enter plague season now, so I'm anticipating a second plague epidemic uh, there. They happen quite frequently. And on the bottom row, uh, some diseases that were not known in the time of Sir Thomas uh, in London, but are quite uh, widespread in, uh, at this point in time. A monkeypox outbreak in Nigeria. Had this happened in London at that stage, people would have assumed this was smallpox. They look almost identical. Uh, there have actually been uh, now three cases this year in the UK, which are spillovers from that. Uh, the MERS, Middle Eastern coronavirus um, outbreak that's occurring, particularly in Saudi Arabia, a real worry to people because the people are becoming very crowded during the Hajj and other pilgrimages and then scattering uh, to the four corners of the world, often to places with relatively limited health services, uh, and uh, two Ebola outbreaks that have occurred in, in uh, DRC this year, one of which is still ongoing. And there are many others. So the point I'm making on this is that epidemics occur every year in every continent and they kill people. Their societal impact will depend on many factors. Uh, they will depend on how, how many people and who is affected. And it may be certain societal groups who are more important for society's functioning, they're not more important to their families, uh, for example, the great flu pandemic of 100 years ago particularly caused mortality in people of young working age. So the impact on society was very considerable. All flu uh, tends to kill the very young and the very old. This also picked out uh, people of young working age. Uh, and many pandemics, and I'll come on to an example of this later, tend to pick out people who are healthcare workers, making the response considerably more difficult. And I've given an example from Nigeria, this is just an outbreak. The index case was not a health worker. Uh, all the uh, next cases in blue are all healthcare workers, doctors or nurses. And all the ones bordered in red went on to die. So being a healthcare worker in an epidemic or pandemic can be a hazardous occupation. Epidemics cause substantial panic and have uh, substantial social and economic uh, impacts very often way out of proportion to their actual medical importance. So let's take um, uh, several of the recent epidemics, and you'll recognise uh, many of the, the front pages of the newspapers involved. These tended to dominate the news for very long periods, including in countries which had almost zero chance of significant onward transmission, including the UK. 
Let's take SARS. Between uh, November 2002 and July 2003, the SARS outbreak, which dominated the news for quite a long period of time, caused just under 10,000 cases and just under 1,000 deaths in 37 countries. Now, that is obviously a substantial tragedy for the individual families, but this is a small outbreak. This outbreak, which we happen to know the data because the World Bank have looked at it, probably wiped around $40 billion off the world economy because it closed down airlines and led to panic in the, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and Canada. A massive influenza pandemic would be a lot bigger than that by many factors and would undoubtedly have a really serious societal impact. So these can have a uh, very big impact on society, even if they are medically relatively less important. The first question that I'm invariably asked by ministers is why can we not predict epidemics and prevent them before they start? And the answer to that is they come from almost every direction. Predicting and trying to prevent epidemics before they begin is extremely difficult. And lots of people have tried and lots of people have failed. And this is really because the great majority of new epidemics come, which are new to the world, come when a disease which is in an animal species jumps over to humans. And I've just taken a few animals here. Uh, these friendly uh, fruit bats, uh, source of Ebola. Uh, this uh, gentleman here, uh, or one of his relatives, source of HIV. Uh, MERS in, South, in, in uh, uh, the Middle East. Uh, the Mexican pig flu, uh, which many of you will remember, uh, and BSE. So in the great majority of new pandemics that are new to the world, Animals is where they come from. Uh, nevertheless, uh, being humans, we tend to blame foreigners, uh, and uh, sometimes rather predictably. So, for example, when uh, syphilis came to the UK, we called it the French pox, uh, the Neapolitan pox, uh, and the Spanish pox, depending who we disliked most at that stage. Uh, people talked about the English sweating sickness, uh, and so on, and uh, the Spanish flu, uh, and so on. So blaming foreigners is what we tend to do. Actually, animals uh, is where they tend to start. But although the first reaction is almost invariably panic, epidemics actually can be addressed systematically. And the rest of this talk is about how systematically you can go through a new epidemic and say, now what are we going to do? And how we're going to respond depends really on five things. The first is mortality or severity of the disease. A trivial infection is probably not something which is going to require such a major response. The second question is, is there a treatment available? And if not, can we find one very quickly? Third question is, is there a vaccine available? And then two very important things which are more epidemiological, but are actually the key to uh, any epidemic where the answer to the last things, treatment or vaccine available already, uh, is critical. The force of transmission, which is a mathematical concept, but I'm glad to say an incredibly simple one, and the root, above all, the root of transmission. The root of the transmission is the key to, to uh, controlling an epidemic. Just before I go into the main technical bit of the talk, I just want to make three uh, definitional things. An endemic disease is the background rate of an infectious disease. And the, I'm making these definitions because I will use these terms repeatedly and I want to be clear what they mean. It may be zero, so an epidemic may be monkeypox, a relatively small number of cases, but the normal number is zero. Or it may be a, quite a high number, which actually then uh, you have a peak of. If you think about, for example, pneumonia, pneumonia is an endemic disease in the UK. It kills very many people in the UK, probably 29,000 people a year on average. But we don't consider that an epidemic. It's just there the whole time. Whereas we get much more excited about epidemics which kill much smaller numbers. So endemic diseases can be quite serious, and I'll be talking for most of the rest of this series on endemic diseases. And then you have outbreaks or epidemics, and that's when you have a spike of diseases above the seasonal background. It may be a small spike, because seasonal background is almost zero, or it may be a large spike. Um, and the terms are slightly slippery, but in general, people mean an epidemic to mean quite a large outbreak, and an outbreak to mean a geographically localised one. So I'm going to use those terms that way. There's, uh, you, know, you can get a bit uh, pernickety about how I use them. And finally, a pandemic is an epidemic which occurs worldwide, or at least crosses a lot of international boundaries. Uh, and officially, it's declared by the World Health Organization.
So the first of the things I said is, are important is mortality. And mortality varies very substantially by different epidemics. But of course, it has to be, to have an impact, it has to be mortality multiplied by the number of people who actually have it. So let's start off with Ebola, a uh, recent Ebola epidemic. The mortality for Ebola epidemic was somewhere between 60 and 70%. So if you've got the disease, that was the probability of dying. Smallpox, the major form of smallpox, around 30% of people would expect normally to die. If you think about the H1N1 1918 flu pandemic, uh, that only had a mortality rate of about 3%. But because it affected many millions of people, its impact on society was actually considerably greater. Uh, and finally, I've put down uh, a, a disease which really started here in the UK, new variant CJD, which came from BSE. That had 100%, still has 100% mortality, um, but of course, relatively small numbers. So the mortality rate is very important. But that may not just be a, a function of the disease. So you've also got the mortality may vary by nutritional status, by ethnicity, by age, or a variety of other factors. So if you just take measles, a disease which wrongly, lots of people think are quite, is quite a trivial disease, in epidemics of measles across Africa, for example, when they occur, you would typically get a mortality rate of somewhere between 5 and 10% of all children who get measles will go on to die of it. This is not a trivial disease. It can be up to uh, uh, 1 in 10. Uh, in measles, on the other hand, uh, in, in, endemic, uh, in, in the UK, because people are well-nourished, the mortality rate for measles is around 1 in 5,000. Still not trivial, but very substantially different. So mortality can vary even within the same disease. This is most clear if you look, about look at influenza. And here what I've done is a table, a two-by-two two table, comparing four, well, three influenza outbreaks. And the key things you need to understand is that transmission and mortality in uh, influenza are to a large extent not related to one another. So you have some uh, epidemics like the Spanish flu pandemic, a fairly high mortality, 3%, but not massive, but massive impact because it had very high transmission. Then you have uh, the recent H7N9 avian influenza. That has relatively small numbers. It's not very transmissible. You pretty well have to do mouth-to-beak resuscitation to catch this from a bird. But if you catch it, your chance of dying is 30%. So flu can kill a lot more than 3% of those who get it. Or then you have the 2009 uh, swine flu uh, pandemic, and that had a 0.3% mortality, so a tenth of that of the uh, great flu pandemic of 1918, uh, but it had very large numbers. So these two are, are largely unrelated. And I think a point I'd like to make with this is the Spanish flu pandemic is not the most dangerous that a flu pandemic could get. It could actually get worse. So think about that when you're feeling cheerful. Even if controlling an epidemic is not possible, stopping people dying, however, should be. And you can usually, uh, in most pandemics, substantially reduce the chance of people dying once you've worked out what the cause is. There may be some specific things you can do. So if it's a bacterial epidemic, for example, uh, you can use antibiotics. Um, uh, and most new bacterial infections, new particularly uh, from animals, will be antibiotic sensitive, not all. You can use antivirals if they're viruses, but uh, viruses, antivirals are at a much earlier stage of development. So most uh, viruses do not have an antiviral that works for them, or at least that we know works for them. If it's a parasite, you can use antiparasitics and so on. And then there are some uh, treatments you can do which are disease-specific, but which are not actually designed to kill the infection uh, with antibiotics or antivirals. And a good example of this is vitamin A, which in measles will massively reduce the mortality, uh, particularly in malnourished children. So this is not an antiviral drug, but it is a drug which has a very big impact on reducing disease. And then you can have some secondary things like uh, antibiotics and severe influenza. It doesn't stop the influenza, but it stops people then developing pneumonia. So you can work out ways to counter people dying, even if they catch the infection. And of course, there's always standard medical treatment with fluids and ventilation. After the question, why have we not predicted this and why could we not stop it before it began, the next question policymakers will reasonably ask us and have asked, I suspect, ever since Jenner produced cowpox vaccine to prevent smallpox is, when can we get a vaccine? 
And the short answer is, if the epidemic is with a disease where we already have an effective vaccine very quickly, provided there are stocks of it. So let's take some examples. Yellow fever, measles, polio, smallpox. These are all diseases where the vaccine we have is highly effective. If we were to have an epidemic of any of these, we should be able to stop it. The occasions when we can't, and there have been some recent smallpox, uh, sorry, some, yeah, some, some recent yellow fever outbreaks. I uh, well, don't want the newspapers to get hold of that uh, smallpox idea. Yellow fever uh, um, epidemics, uh, and they have occurred in part because the world has got a global shortage of yellow fever vaccine. But it's not because we don't know how to make it. It's simply we've got a manufacturing problem. Then you can have some diseases where there's a variant of a known disease with a known vaccine. And the classic for this is influenza, which, as you'll all know, every year has to be reformulated to meet the current form. If you get a pandemic, you won't know what the current form is, and it'll usually take at least four months between the time that the pandemic has started and the point you can get an effective vaccine. That's the minimum lead time. It might well take longer. For new diseases, even if it is possible to get a vaccine, a vaccine will usually take years. So it is not realistic to think that in the first phase of an epidemic you're going to be able to control it with a vaccine because that is simply not biologically or, uh, or, or um, uh, clinically feasible. And for many diseases, we've tried really hard for decades to get vaccines and so far have failed to get ones that are more than partially effective, good examples being HIV uh, and malaria. So vaccines have a major role, but the idea that they're going to be the solution to every epidemic is uh, optimistic. If you do have a vaccine, however, there are a variety of ways you can use it. The one that everyone would think of is vaccinating the whole population. And this is going to work if you've got a highly effective vaccine that has low side effects, is easy, ideally is cheap. And this will provide some degree of immunity for the whole population. and Even those who are not vaccinated will be uh, protected by the fact that people around them are vaccinated, so-called herd immunity. But there may be other groups, other situations where you don't have that kind of vaccine, or you don't have it in large enough amounts. Uh, and in that case, you can have two other approaches you can take. You can uh, vaccinate high-risk groups, so people you think are particularly likely to get an infection and then pass it on. That might be, for example, healthcare workers. It might be, for example, sex, uh, uh, commercial sex workers, if it was a sexually transmitted infection. And the third approach you can take, which is probably the least intuitive, but actually is extremely effective in the right environment, is what's called ring vaccination. This is where you find a case, you then vaccinate everybody who's come into contact with that person, and generally everybody who's come into contact with those people as well. This was tried effectively with the smallpox uh, eradication attempt, and we're using it again now uh, in the most recent Ebola outbreak. So if that, but that does depend on the vaccine you have being extremely quick acting. If you have a vaccine that's going to take three months to have its effect, this approach is clearly unlikely to be effective. The final concept uh, is the idea of force of transmission. And this is the one bit of maths I'm going to do um, in this uh, talk, but it is a simple one. The key thing to understand with force of transmission, this is the central understanding of epidemics, is if you have uh, a disease which on average passes itself from one person to one person to one person on average, that disease is stable in the population. That has a force of transmission, an R of one. If one person gives it to two people, give it to four people, give it to eight people and so on, that has an R of two, and that disease is expanding exponentially. And for those of you who work in the city, this is a compounding problem. Expect exponential increase over time. That is what causes epidemics. And if the R is below 1, let's say it's 0.5, 10 people give it to 5 people, give it to 2.5 people, and that disease is on its way out. The key with a, to control an epidemic is to try and work out what its R is and get it below 1. Once it's below 1, the epidemic is going to die. And so that understanding this number is central to uh, epidemics. And in fact, very large numbers of uh, infectious epidemics have really quite low Rs. They're quite close to one. So the idea of getting them below one is entirely biologically feasible. So if the Ebola epidemic, for example, R was somewhere between 1.2 and 2.5. Flu pandemic, probably between 2 and 3. Uh, polio a bit higher, 4, 4, 5 to 7. Uh, HIV, uh, 2 and so on. 
There are, of course, some diseases where the R is really high, uh, and in particular I point out malaria in Africa, where the R for the disease can be over 100. Getting that below 1 is going to be problematic. And alongside this, not exactly the same thing, is the idea of the doubling time. How long does it take for each number of cases to double? And that's a combination of the R and how frequent uh, the case, uh, cases pass things on. But for the rest of this talk, I'm going to talk about route of transmission, because this is the key to control. And there are basically five. And what you can do to control an epidemic depends on which route of transmission you've got. You have airborne routes, uh, with and examples of those are influenza, MERS and SARS, food and waterborne routes, cholera, typhoid, uh, BSE, CJD, uh, touch, uh, Ebola or Lassa, vector-borne, that means insects, Zika, dengue and plague would be examples, or sexual, for example, HIV or syphilis. Now, for all of these, you could usually have a predominant route and you may have a secondary route. But generally, one route dominates, and if you can control that route, the disease can, uh, can be brought under control. Let's take some examples. Ebola is a touch disease. Uh, from, and uh, most people know this, so I'm just going to use this as an illustration. Despite the fact that actually, if you have Ebola... Even if you're relatively close to someone but do not touch them, you're not going to catch it. So, for example, if the provost had Ebola, I would not consider myself at risk standing this far away from him. Uh, Ebola managed to spread really quite effectively through West Africa. And the modelling for that demonstrated that we were soon going to have a disease that was well out of control, even though this was relatively difficult to pass on by touch. So the situation at the start of the epidemic was a disease with high mortality, very few medical countermeasures, no vaccine, uh, although there was animal data showing that vaccines might work, an R of between 1.5 and 2.5, we worked that out fairly quickly, and a doubling time of about two weeks. And the main route of transmission was touch. Importantly, people were only infectious when they had symptoms, but they remained infectious after death. Those are really critical points. And what that meant, therefore, was because this was a touch disease, we had to have touch interventions. And we chose four areas where touch was passing it on. In hospitals, and it was about control of, of infections in hospitals. Around burials, because people were infectious after death, and they were touched after death, so it was about safe burials. Safe burials was easy, a safe burial that was acceptable to the family, much more difficult, so uh, that was a key thing. Um, reducing transmission in the community by basically finding people with symptoms and isolating them, and then generalised uh, uh, social distancing, for example, encouraging people not to shake hands when they met. Quite simple things that would make it less likely they would touch someone who was then infectious. And what you found with Sierra Leone is if you put these together... You, you were in a situation where the R uh, began to fall really quite fast. So the major intervention started in August and September. You had an R of over 1.5, and the R then began steadily to drop. Now, of course, as long as it was above 1, the number of cases continued to rise. So one of the things that happened in this epidemic is that people in about October said this isn't working because the number of cases was going up. But actually, if you looked at the R, what you could say is that was coming down. And we could see that it was going to cross uh, one in roundabout uh, December. Uh, and at that point, you reach the peak of the epidemic and it passes on. So you had used R to see that your interventions were going to be effective. As I said previously, a very heavy burden on healthcare workers. And that did mean that in our in early interventions, we were between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Healthcare workers were absolutely essential, but they were also the most vulnerable people. There was a big advantage epidemiologically to early intervention, but if you put untrained people who didn't know how to use personal protective equipment into uh, hospitals, you had a situation where uh, around 8 to 10% of the healthcare workers who were initially treating cases caught Ebola, and around 80% of them died. And so you had this real trade-off between getting in early and controlling the epidemic and throwing people essentially over the top into a very dangerous situation. And that tension had to be resolved. 
We've now got a second uh, outbreak this year of Ebola, and interestingly, the way we're having to address it is quite different. The most positive difference is that we've now got a vaccine, and we're now doing ring vaccination, which was not available previously, and because of the work that was done in the first epidemic, we were able to go on to this second one. Uh, but uh, we also have found that the social interventions we used have become much more difficult. Ebola in this area is politicised. It's a very politically difficult environment. It's a very unstable group, uh, area. There are many armed groups, substantial distrust of the government. Uh, and I think it would be far too early to say we've got this out outbreak at the moment under control. The second uh, major pandemic to consider uh, is HIV uh, pandemic. This is a sexual disease. I'm going to go and take an example of each of the routes. Uh, and may, you know, the other, after the flu pandemic of 1918, the other really major pandemic uh, of the last 100 years, uh, around 35 million deaths to date. This is a really serious uh, disease. And again, if you look at the spread in Africa uh, that happened uh, from 1984 through to 1999, I was working in this part of Africa in 1999, and watching a third of people my age dying of HIV was quite a uh, depressing experience, um, including many of my friends and colleagues. Uh, it, you know, a, quite a rapid spread through the uh, continent. So at the start of this epidemic, which was recognized in 1981, had been going on earlier than that, we realized there was a very high mortality. Uh, we had no medical countermeasures, very few. Uh, we had no vaccine. The R was roughly two to five, but very variable. Main route of transmission was sexual, that was worked out quite early on, but there was an important secondary route that was intravenous, people sharing needles basically, uh, sometimes people who were doing recreational drugs, but also healthcare workers uh, using the same needles for lots of people, so this was not just uh, drug user, uh, intravenous drug users. Uh, and importantly, people were infectious when they had no symptoms, there was no way of telling that someone had symptoms uh, and they would be infectious for very many years, completely different from the Ebola situation. So in the absence of a vaccine, a drug, or anything else, the one thing we had was behavior change. And there were a lot of approaches to trying to change sexual behavior. I have to say a great number of them were highly ineffective, including ones which you just look at them and just think, what on earth are you trying to do here? <laughs> so changing behavior is difficult, but for a sexually transmitted infection was clearly absolutely essential. And one thing that we were successful in doing is getting people to know their HIV status, but that took really quite a long time. And by the alternative uh, route, we had to consider those with intravenous uh, drug route, it was also about behaviour change, but it was not really about trying to stop people who were addicted to one of the most highly addictive drugs ever known, uh, heroin, to not be addicted. That was simply not realistic, so it had to be to say, don't share needles. And that was quite a difficult political battle to fight because uh, a lot of people wanted to just carry on saying, well, you, you, you know, what do you expect? Just stop using this drug. Uh, they obviously hadn't ever been addicted to heroin. So the approach we had to then move on to, apart from behavior change, was drugs to treat people. And that really has been what has turned the tide with HIV, has not been a preventative approach, although that has been important, but it has been drugs to stop people dying. The first antiretrovirals were in 1986, and they failed fast, within weeks. So taking them really extended your life for no practical purposes uh, for very long. We got into the proper antiretroviral era in about 1996, but they were very expensive and clearly not affordable in the part of the world where the great majority of the infection was. The drugs are now widespread, but still under 50% of people who have HIV are on them. Uh, but there's now a very good outlook for people who know they got HIV and are on effective drugs. So with HIV, we haven't managed to stem the epidemic, although it is going backwards. What we have managed to do is move from a situation where everyone died to a situation where every, almost everyone who's on drugs lives a good and uh, fulfilled life. We have looked at vaccines and drugs to prevent HIV. There's been a huge investment in HIV vaccines over many decades, and we have yet to get a vaccine that is anywhere near being deployed in the general population. It demonstrates that sometimes vaccines are relatively straightforward biologically, uh, sometimes they really are not. What may have an effect on the epidemic, however, is that people who are on treatment are much less infectious, and therefore the widespread use of treatment, if you treat people early, may well lead 
to a reduction in the epidemiology. There's a bit of debate about how long people need to be on treatment for this to be true, but it clearly is going to have an effect. Uh, and you can now use drugs as prophylaxis in high-risk encounters. So what we've got with HIV is incidence uh, in terms of number of new cases is drifting down, but quite slowly. There will still be a lot of HIV new cases at the point when uh, I retire and probably at the point when I die. But the number of people who die from HIV massively reduced. So we've dealt with this, this epidemic by treatment. And in high-income cases, new cases are, are beginning to drop. Uh, and, uh, but we must be aware that uh, eight, well, about 1.8 million people became newly infected with HIV just last year. So this is not a disease that has gone away by any mean, manner of means. And we're not likely to get rid of this unless we do get a curative drug, which we do not currently have, or a vaccine, or both. And both of those, I think, are some way off. There are, interestingly, some parallels with syphilis in the UK. Um, syphilis uh, entered the UK around the time, just before the time, of Sir Thomas Gresham's birth. Um, almost exactly this time, uh, 100 years ago, there was a royal commission that asked the question, how many people in London have syphilis? And the answer was 10% of men. Uh, just look around you and just think about that fact. Uh, what killed that epidemic was the introduction of penicillin. Uh, and so, again, treatment was what actually uh, led to that outbreak um, stopping. Although there still is syphilis, obviously, now. Third major route of transmission is vector-borne epidemics. Now, rare in the UK, but they remain a major global risk. They used, of course, to be extremely common in the UK. So vector-borne epidemics, uh, that's a stage when this college was founded. Epidemic typhus, passed on by fleas. Uh, plague, also passed on by fleas. Uh, and malaria, particularly in the uh, less salubrious bits of Essex, uh, passed on by mosquitoes. Uh, actually, the UK now has very few vectors with epidemic potential, although they can pass on some diseases. And the important ones are ticks and potentially midges, although there are no midge-borne diseases at this point in humans. But globally, vector-borne epidemics are extremely common. Mosquitoes are the main culprit, but sandflies, fleas, biting flies, ticks and mites are all capable of passing on different infections. So there's a lot of vectors out there, and the question is, where do they live? Um, uh, professor Frank, Frank uh, Cox, who was a previous uh, Gresham professor of physics, is a real expert on the Aedes mosquito, and I've uh, stolen a couple of slides from him just to make a point. Uh, Aedes mosquitoes are one example of a, a, a mosquito which can pass on many diseases. So it can pass on yellow fever, it can pass on dengue, it can pass on chikungunya, uh, for example. Uh, and uh, it has spread quite widely because it is very well adapted to living in peri-urban settings. So this, for example, shows the map of the, trans the, the spread of dengue through the Americas uh, over um, uh, three decades because this mosquito is ideally suited to the environment. Uh, and a recent example was Zika, which again hit the front pages, a disease that had been around in Africa since at least 1947, that was when it was first described, probably obviously a lot longer than that, managed to hitchhike its way across the Pacific to Latin America and set up a very major epidemic in Brazil, which again, many of you will remember. This is the one that was found to cause very small heads in some newly born babies, almost certainly leading to very substantial neurological damage and may well be many other babies who are damaged who we do not yet know. What you found was, uh, again, very small number of people, babies with very uh, small heads uh, born, and then in 2015, a huge spike uh, of these cases, and some extremely good epidemiology by Brazilian scientists quickly worked out that there was a link to Zika, which was, in a sense, uh, in no way obvious. Um, uh, and we therefore had a significant epidemic with high transmission in Brazil, Around 12% of pregnancies in the first trimester in people who were infected would go on to have microcephaly, and probably more of them have neurological diseases. This is a significant uh, infection. No drugs, no vaccines, and although we know the mosquito, we don't have very good ways of controlling it. It's a lot harder to control than some other mosquito species, although control measures are available and improving. And there was the possibility of a sexual route of transmission as well. What we then had was the peak of the epidemic, uh, and then it began to decline. And it began to decline for really two reasons, one of which was that the, uh, the climate, the, sorry, the, uh, the rainy season 
changed, making it less easy to transmit. There were fewer mosquitoes, practical purposes. Uh, and the second uh, was that a much larger proportion of the population became infected and then became immune to the infection. It's some combination of those two. Uh, this was fortunate uh, for many people in Brazil. It was also actually fortunate for the Rio, uh, Rio Olympics, uh, which otherwise could have been significantly impacted by this disease. But the question after this outbreak in Brazil was, where else could it go? And the answer is, in theory, anywhere where the main mosquito that passes it on, uh, Aedes aegypti mosquito, uh, is found. And this is a map of where it is found. And then it has a, a close relation, something called Aedes albopictus. It's not clear how good this mosquito is at transmitting Zika. It's still not really clear how good this mosquito is. But this one has an even wider distribution in areas which are a bit colder because it's able to overwinter under certain circumstances. What that means is that uh, this particular uh, vector, so Aedes aegypti is not well suited to Europe, Europe, but this particular vector, Aedes albopictus, is gradually spreading through Europe. And these are maps of where Aedes albopictus uh, could potentially be uh, because there's climatic suitability for it uh, in the next few years. So there are part, large parts of Europe, including small parts of England, in fact, which are capable, in theory, of maintaining populations of these vectors and therefore potentially of maintaining transmission of an epidemic. So we've had uh, touch, sexual, and vector-borne. Um, I'm now going to move on to waterborne, water and food. I'm going to be relatively quick on this one because uh, this is a disease which should not exist. Cholera, and there's a massive cholera outbreak in Yemen at the moment and has been for the last year. 1.2 million suspected cholera cases and over 2,500 associated deaths with 29% of them in children under the age of five. Look at that and weep, because this is a man-made epidemic. Currently, there are about 100,000 cases a week of cholera in Yemen. Now, we know entirely what to do about cholera. It was one of the first properly epidemiologically investigated diseases, and it was actually, its route of transmission was demonstrated really clearly first here in London by this gentleman, John Snow, uh, and he did two things, one of which was some ep epidemiology that no one really knows about, where he mapped different water companies and their rates of cholera. But the second one, which people do tend to know about, is he mapped outbreaks around the different pumps in central London and demonstrated that they were mainly centred on one pump in Golden Square or on Broad Street. And rather theatrically, he went and removed the pump handle uh, from that pump um, to ensure that no one could actually use it. And as a result of treating the water and stopping the use of the pump, the cholera outbreak uh, stopped. So we have known what to do about this since 1854. Unfortunately, the reality is that epidemics have always and will always follow war, civil unrest and disaster. Uh, what development people would call development in reverse. And there are many reasons for this. Water, sanitation, housing and vaccine programs get destroyed and therefore all the things that have been built up as defences uh, are removed. And therefore all foes like typhoid, typhus and cholera re-emerge. They, they do that as an absolute, as night follows day after wars. You also get rapid movements of populations expose, exposing people who are immune to a disease, sorry, non-immune to a disease, to an area of risk. You get people moving into marginal land because they've been displaced, where there's lots of vectors which can pass things on, and you get breakdowns of social norms, so you get increases in sexually transmitted infections. Basically, war is an absolutely perfect way to drive an epidemic of any sort. Not all food and waterborne uh, epidemics are caused by war. They can occur even the most, uh, in the most peaceful and prosperous societies, uh, but usually only under quite limited uh, circumstances. Uh, a recent uh, example, at least one that is, it will, many people in the audience will remember, was the BSE new variant CJD epidemic that started here in the UK. And the reason this was able to uh, get around are very stringent public health things that protect, without most people knowing about it, you're all protected by a web of rules, regulations, inspections, 
uh, and uh, other paraphernalia, uh, which prevent foodborne and waterborne infections occurring. This is an example where the usual barriers didn't work. It wasn't destroyed by cooking, and we therefore had to remove it from the food chain. And that led to a situation where we had over 180,000 cases of BSE in cattle. Uh, this led in due course so far to 178 cases of new variant CJD, but numbers are gradually ticking up. Um, there was a massive cull of cattle. Uh, removal of offal and neurological tissue changed the feed. So we were able to respond to this. But nevertheless, it does demonstrate that even in highly developed societies, you can still get uh, diseases uh, with, with, by the foodborne or waterborne route. But I'll finish in terms of the, um, the diseases I'll go through before I round up some points uh, with um, pandemic influenza, because this remains uh, by far, uh, by very, very long distance, our biggest known epidemic risk. It is the top of the UK national government held risk register, outweighing every other risk that the nation uh, faces, and for very good reasons. Uh, airborne risk is indiscriminate. It's much more difficult to interrupt than other transmission routes. You, you know, stopping people touching one another, changing sexual behaviour may be difficult. But it's a lot harder to stop them actually breathing in a, an environment around people. The spread of an influenza pandemic is really rapid, as I demonstrated in the, some of my earlier slides, the massive speed at which the 1918 pandemic occurred exactly 100 years ago, and a very high proportion of the population would be affected at once. So if you think about a situation where around 20% of the population were actually infected, that most of those who are not infected would probably be caring for children, for grandparents, for friends who had the disease, you, then you take, let's say you take out 50% of all train drivers, all supermarket workers, all nurses, everyone who mans the banks, and just think what that's going to do to our society. That is the reason why this is a really serious potential threat to the UK. And the question is not whether we will have another pandemic, we will have another pandemic, it's really a question of when and how bad. The last pandemic we had in, nine, in 2009 was really pretty low virulence, uh, but still very substantial numbers. And just looking at that one, again, just looking at the speed of this, uh, this uh, is around the 6th of April, where it had spread to. This is by the, around the 20th of April, by May, and by July. That's the speed it, occurred, it transmitted uh, around the world. Uh, there were around, somewhere between uh, 40 and 90 million cases from this pandemic. And because it was low virulence, there were only, only, between eight and 18,000 deaths. But this was, a, this was a near miss. This could have been a lot worse. And there are, of course, wide estimates on the numbers. The peak of transmission of this came on incredibly fast. If you look at the UK numbers, this just shows you quite how quickly uh, this hits. It's in a matter of a couple of weeks. So this is not something you have time properly to prepare for. Officially, there were 457 deaths uh, in two waves. Almost certainly the numbers were a bit higher than that. We did have a vaccine available, but well after the peak. So it wouldn't have helped us if this peak had been massive. Uh, the use of drugs was highly controversial. I'm not going to go into controversy. I could do so in questions if you're interested. Uh, They're most useful if taken early. But importantly, all the drugs, a single mutation of the virus was enough to make, it, make the drug ineffective. And these occurred fairly early on in the epidemic. And uh, a whole bunch, of, inevitably, of interventions are called for, uh, like screening at airports and banning travel, which are utterly useless. Well, it's close to utterly useless, it makes no difference. And closing schools, which does have an effect, but at a significant cost to the education of the children and to the people who are working who then have to uh, uh, stop work so they can look after children at home. So this is going to have considerable problems. We can certainly put the building blocks in place to try and uh, address an influenza pandemic, uh, but uh, we have to be aware that this would be chaotic and big and no plan survives contact with the enemy. So the things we got in place, mathematical models, very good models that will help us early in a pandemic to work out how quickly it's going to move, where it's going to go. Global virus identification networks to work out very quickly what the virus is and where it's come from, what it looks like. We've pre-decided, although there's lots of debate about bits of it, which bits of the health service you'd close down first to protect the rest, because we have to do that to work out how severe it is. 
We've worked out how to optimise vaccine production, but we all know that four months is the absolute minimum, and you look at the speed of that transmission, the great majority of the first wave will have done its damage well before we have a vaccine. And you've got an antiviral stockpile, uh, which, is, uh, which is a lot better than nothing, but has some uh, uh, problems associated with it. So just to pull together some of the themes on this, the first reaction to, a, to a, an epidemic, even quite a small one, is usually panic. And in fact, for small epidemics, panic is what causes the major problems. But for a big epidemic, it is genuinely big. And some of the examples I've given, particularly 1918 flu pandemic and HIV, seriously big. How we respond to them needs to depend on mortality and severity, treatment, what we've got, what we can adapt and what we can develop, vaccines, but for most new pandemics, we're not going to have a vaccine or we're going to have it quite late. A force of transmission, how close is the R to 1? That is really critical to what we do. And then above all, working out what the route of transmission is, because even if you don't know what the infection is, if you know how it's passed on, you can then work out some logical countermeasures. Once we've actually determined the route and force of transmission, uh, we can make changes. And I've put these up in one place just to stress a general point. For Ebola, it was behaviour change, old-fashioned isolation of cases, and now a vaccine, but a lot later. For HIV, behaviour change, and more than a decade later, drugs. Cholera, BJD, safe water, safe food, and an absence of war. And influenza, vaccines, drugs, and societal organisation. In each one of those lines... A huge amount of it is around organisation of society and behaviour change, not around drugs, vaccines and other high-end medicine. So societal changing, society changing normal behaviours, which people normally do, shaking hands, hugging a friend, having sexual relations with your, your regular partner, eating a meal, drinking, these are normal behaviours. You have to get people to change them in epidemics because that is likely to be the only way you're going to be able to get on top of them and you therefore do need to know the route. So although overall infectious diseases, these dotted line, has significantly reduced in all high-income countries as a cause of mortality compared to cardiovascular disease and cancer, epidemics remain a very significant threat even to the highest-income countries and certainly in the lowest-income countries. In Thomas Gresham's lifetime, infectious diseases dominated medicine. Epidemics will always occur, but the risk is substantially smaller. And I think my central point would be that wealthier countries are hardened against epidemics, not because people deliberately design them that way, but because they wish to have sanitation, good housing, proper food, clean water. And if you have those, epidemics are very, very much more, uh, less likely. So, and this would be something which I'm sure Sir Thomas Gresham himself would have approved of as a financier and a diplomat, those who bring peace and prosperity do at least as much to prevent future major epidemics as doctors and scientists. And since we're a lot more prosperous, I'm glad to say epidemics are much less likely, but they will still continue. Thank you very much.